so much for that music. I just want to briefly introduce our speaker to you, Chuck Holtry. He is the director of the Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism, and I know that you will be blessed today. And the reason I know that is because Chuck loves Jesus. He loves God with all of his heart, and you can tell just by interacting with Chuck that he is a friendly individual that truly loves his God, and I know that the Holy Spirit will work powerfully through him. Last night, he gave a powerful presentation called Personal Preparation, and I know today the seminar entitled Why Adventism will be a blessing as well. So Chuck, thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to the rest of this day, and there'll be potluck after this uh, uh, worship service, and then after that at 2 p.m. we'll continue um, AFCO to go. So thank you for being here with us, Chuck. Good morning. Do you mind if I stand down here? I'm glad you said so because it's a long distance from up there from here to be able to see. I'm just going to uh, attach a few things here, make sure we're working. All right. This morning, the message we're looking at is... I think an important one, or I guess that's why I'm sharing it, but I would like us to be introspective, if that's okay. Take some time to think about ourselves, think about ourselves as a church family, uh, think about us as individuals, and what God wants to share with us. Why does the Fulbrook Seventh-day Adventist Church exist? Why does your family exist? What is your purpose in life? I mean, these are big questions. We hear them. Sometimes we hear them so much that we're sure we know the answer that we don't even think about it that often. But I'd like to take some time looking at why God chooses people and what he chooses them for. God has always had chosen He's always had chosen people. And so this morning, we're going to start out looking at a few of God's chosen people. We started out in Matthew. Sorry, just saw a friend of mine completely lost my train of thought. We're going to start out with Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verse 1. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, 2, and 3. We just read it for our scripture reading. But if you don't mind, I'd like to to focus on it a little bit. Abraham is the first person we're going to look at on being chosen, called out. What was he called out to do? Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So we see that Abraham was called out, and God was going to do what to Abraham? He was going to bless him. And what was Abraham then supposed to do? Be a blessing. So God was going to bless him, and then Abraham in turn was going to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. The next person in this lineage was Isaac, and the same exact thing was repeated to him. We saw in Genesis 12 that in thee all families of the earth will be blessed. Now in Genesis chapter 26 we see a slightly different statement being given for Isaac. Very similar, but slightly different. Exodus chapter 26, verse 4, God repeats this to Isaac. He says, I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham is all families of the earth will be blessed. Now in Isaac, all nations of the earth will be blessed. But it's saying the same thing. Very important. 
Who's the seed of Abraham and Isaac? Jesus. So we can say predominantly that it's through Jesus that all families and nations of the earth will be blessed. But I believe that it's even deeper than that. I'm going to look at one more person in this lineup. Of course, Jacob. Genesis chapter 28. The same exact thing is told to Jacob. In chapter 28 of Genesis and verse 4, it says this. Say verse 4. Verse 14. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt be spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall families of the earth be blessed. So the blessing is not simply coming from the seed of Jacob, it's also coming from who? Jacob himself. I will take very little time, but some time to ask you this. Was Jacob a great man at this point? In Genesis 28, verse 14, he's just running away from home. He is sleeping on the ground because he has no place to lay his head. And the reason he ran away from home is because he is a liar, deceitful. And then God says, I'm going to have you be a blessing. That's good news, isn't it? Some of you in here may be able to relate to Jacob. I'll raise my hand. You don't have to raise yours. But God can take us and make us a blessing. The next group of people, actually let me read this uh, passage from Prophets and Kings, page 15. It was for the purpose of bringing the best gifts of heaven to all the peoples of the earth that God called Abraham out from his idolatrous kindred and bade him dwell in the land of Canaan. So why did God call Abraham out from his kindred to dwell in the land of Canaan? What was the reason it says here? For the purpose of what? Okay, it says it was for the purpose of what? Bringing the best gifts of heaven to all the peoples of the earth. So the reason why Abram was called out was to bring the best gifts of heaven to all the peoples of the earth. That's awesome. So he wasn't called out just to live in Canaan and in a tent with luxurious surroundings. Well, not quite luxurious surroundings, but you know, all the money he could handle, just live as a kind of a sheik out there and have whatever he wanted, when he wanted it, and be recognized as a great tribesman. Uh, why was he called out again? To be a blessing, to bring the very best gifts of heaven. Then he goes on and says, I will make of thee a great nation, he said, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. It was a high honor to which Abraham was called, that of being the father of the people who for centuries were to be the guardians and preservers of the truth of God to the world, the people through whom all the nations of the earth should be blessed, and the advent of the promised Messiah. So he's supposed to bring the best gifts of heaven to all the peoples of the earth. He is supposed to be a guardian and preserver of the truth, and it's through him that the promised Messiah is going to come. Three kings that are coming from Abram. Those three things are still part of God's people today. We are still supposed to bring the best gifts of heaven to God's people. We are still supposed to be the preservers and guardians of the truth. And it is through our preaching that we tell of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Soon. Soon and very soon. God's calling hasn't changed. Things have changed. Times have changed. God's people have changed or been adjusted. I'll explain some more of that. But the calling for God's people is still the same. Genesis chapter 19, Exodus 19, verse 6. Abraham, <laughs> I'm getting tongue-tied this morning. Moses is near Mount Sinai, and God is speaking to Moses. And as he's speaking to Moses, he says, here's what I want you to say to the children of Israel. And then he tells them, there in Exodus chapter 19, in verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. 
you know, when I first read this, I thought, wasn't God's plan simply to have Levites? You know, the tribe of Levi. They were the tribe of priests. And they were the ones who dealt with everything that was connected with the service of the sanctuary and the ministry that was there. But now it says that, uh, not now, it says here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, like the whole children of Israel. You see, God's original plan wasn't for the tribe of Levi to be the only priest. God's original plan is that everyone in Israel would be a priest. Really? Yes. Everyone was supposed to be a priest. But because of Israel's sin, where was that at? The golden calf experience. You have the Levites come aside, and now Israel needs a priest for them. Instead of being a priest, they need a priest. But they were supposed to be a nation of priests, and the world was supposed to be theirs. We are priests to the world, but instead, the Levites became priests to Israel, and Israel forgot that they were supposed to be priests to the world. Things change. Prophets and Kings, page 16, says, God's law must be exalted, his authority maintained, and to the house of Israel was given this great and noble work. So the house of Israel was given a great and noble work to do this, to exalt God's law and to maintain his authority. God separated them from the world that he might commit to them a sacred trust. He made them the depositaries of his law, and he purposed through them to preserve among men the knowledge of himself. It was God's purpose that through Israel men would know God. That's probably the most profound statement I will say today because God said it. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. It is God's purpose through men to give himself to the world. And I'm using men generically, anthropos, humankind. God separated from the world. He made them, oh, sorry. Did I go on without turning the screen? Here it is. Thus, the light of heaven was to shine out of the world, out to a world enshrouded in darkness. And a voice was to be heard appealing to how many people? All peoples. To turn from what? Idolatry. To serve what? Who? The living God. So were the people in China supposed to hear from the children of Israel? Yes. Were the people in Ethiopia supposed to hear from the children of Israel? Yes. Were the people who lived in the northern parts of Scandinavia supposed to hear from the children of Israel? Yes. That was God's plan. That's what he wanted. God has a purpose for his people that all nations of the earth will be blessed. I'd like if you would be so kind as to turn with me to a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah, under inspiration, shares a, a parable here. This parable, Jesus actually takes up in his ministry and gives the same exact parable with some, some modifications. But it's a parable. It's a parable of a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. God has a vineyard. That's what we're reading about here. Continues on. And he fenced it. So he, he not only has a vineyard that's in a very good, fruitful area, he fences it, puts a fence around it, gathers out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine. So I have the best soil. I've taken out all the stones. I've got a wall around it. And now I'm going to put the very best vine I can find into it. I'm planting it with the best I've got. I built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. The Bible says he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth what kind of grapes? Wild grapes. So it, was, it, was, it had everything that was best. You see that. And yet it brought forth something that was not good. What is God talking about here in verse 1 and 2? Well, verse 7 tells us. Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. Oh, so God's talking about his people here. I think it's important that we realize that when God has a people, what is his desire for them? It's that they bear fruit. Why does a vine have grapes? 
so that it can have a glass of grape juice at harvest time. Is that right? I'm assuming that you think it's yes, because you're giving me that essence. I think, why does an orange tree have oranges? So that it can have a glass of orange juice at harvest. You agree with me? When's the last time you saw an orange tree drinking a glass of orange juice? Why does an avocado tree, I think this is appropriate right about now, right? Have avocados. So that it can have a nice avocado spread on its sandwich. It's an avocado tree, and it's, biologically, it's reproducing, right? But it's also because it's blessing other people. Fruit trees don't bear fruit for their own consumption. So, when God asks us to bear fruit, it's not for us to bless ourselves. The reason we have fruit is so that we can bless other people. And uh, unless you think that you've got to wear, I mean, get your fruit from someplace. Do you wear fruit or do you bear fruit? I'm glad you said bear. You're correct. You don't wear fruit. I would look a little funny if I came out here wearing fruit, wouldn't I? Yes? And if you went by a tree sometime in an orchard and you saw things tied by strings off the tree, you would think this is odd. In fact, eventually that tree uh, would start to smell from the rotting fruit hanging from its branches. Why? Because trees were not designed to wear fruit. Trees were designed to bear fruit. And Christians are the same way. You say, Chuck, what do you mean wear fruit? You know, I've met Christians, I've been a Christian, let me put it that way, I'll make it less personal for you and more personal for me, where I have done the right thing because I'm supposed to do the right thing. I look the right way because I'm supposed to look the right way, but it's not because it's from inside of Chuck, it's because Chuck put it on so people can look at me and say, good job, Chuck. And I was good at doing that. By the time uh, I'll share a little bit of my testimony, very briefly here. By the time I had reached high school, my senior year, I was the pastor of almost every single society in our, in, our, in our high school. I went to Blue Mountain Academy in Pennsylvania. And I was the pastor of the gymnastics team. And I was the pastor of the senior class. And I was the student association VP. And I was popular. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because that was all a mask. I had learned to look good on the outside. I had even people say, Chuck, could you spend time with our children? You're so spiritual. Never say that to some child. I wish they hadn't said that to me. I learned to look good, even though I wasn't good. I learned to wear my fruit very well, even though I wasn't bearing fruit at all. By the way, sometimes we as Adventists train our youth to wear fruit instead of bear fruit. You know that. Sometimes we even train our members to wear fruit instead of bearing fruit. My friends, when you bear it, that's when the fruit tastes good. When you wear it, that's when it stinks. Okay? Let's, let's, let's let God help us to bear fruit. Now, Children of Israel didn't do this, obviously. There were some problems. God had this ideal. He wanted them to have fruit, and it says here that they did not. He went through them, and what kind of fruit did he get? Bad fruit. So I like to look at what could have been if they'd actually borne good fruit. In your personal life, I do not suggest that you think about what could have been. All you're going to have is stress. Is that fair? But as a Christian church, I think it's okay for us to think of what could have been to know what can be. So let's look at what could have been. Look at it. use a few passages from the Old Testament. First from Isaiah chapter 19, verses 24 through 25. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. So here it is, Israel being a blessing. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be who? Egypt, my people. And who? Assyria, the work of my hand and Israel, mine inheritance. 
I hope you're confused. Because how can it be that Egypt is God's people? How can it be that Assyria is the work of God's hands? Surely this is a misprint. Maybe Isaiah stopped listening to the Holy Spirit long enough to write down this verse and started listening again for the next verse. You and I both know we don't believe in inspiration like that. But it doesn't make sense. How could God's enemies become his people? What's God thinking here? You know, Egypt was the main enemy of the children of Israel to the southwest. Assyria was the main enemy of God's people to the northeast. Uh, Egyptians were severely cruel. And so were the Assyrians. So what is God saying? God desires that even the enemies of his people become his people. God desires that even the enemies of his people become his people. Who are your enemies? God wants them to become his people. Who are the people that you wish they would just cease to exist? None of you probably ever feel like that. But if you did, who are they? Don't say it out loud. God wants them to be his people. When you think of that girl who just gets under your skin, God says, I want her to be my daughter. When you think of that man who just, oh, he doesn't have a sense of gratitude in his, any bone in his body. And God says, I want him to be my son. Who are your enemies? God wants them to be his people. That's the kind of God we serve. You see, God doesn't look at things like you and I look at things. We look at people as how they affect us. God looks at people as what he's given for them. Totally difference, isn't it? Totally difference. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 22. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. So not just Egypt and Assyria, the enemies of God's people. He wants many strong nations to come and to worship where? At Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is going to be the center of God's kingdom. I want you to imagine what this looks like. Israel is oppressed by Egypt. Because they're faithful to God, Egypt turns to God and becomes part of the big picture. A little bit later, the Assyrians attack. And as they're being cruel, dreadfully cruel to God's people, they're faithful to him. And Assyrians say, wow, if they're like that under pressure, under torture, that's the kind of God I want. And the Assyrians become believers in God. And instead of having this little small nation in the middle of the crossroads of the ancient world, you start having this big nation at the crossroads. And it keeps expanding. And Jerusalem is the capital. Am I making this up? I'm not. You'll find out. Here's another passage. This is Isaiah 66, 18 through 19 and verse 21. Follow this carefully. It's a little confusing if, you, if we don't. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. So who's God going to gather here? All nations and tongues. And what will they do? That's right. They're going to come and see God's glory. I'm assuming they're coming to Jerusalem, okay? But all nations and tongues, people from every part of the earth is going to come and see the glory of God. Then it says this, and I will set a sign upon them. So they come to see the glory of God, and God puts a sign on them. We call it a seal, Right? And I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. The people who have come from all nations and tongues that have received the sign from God, God's going to send them out to the nations. Which ones? To Tarshish, Pool, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither seen my glory. So they're going everywhere. And it says, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. If I were to summarize this text, Simply, I would say Gentile missionaries going to the Gentiles. Gentile missionaries going to the Gentiles. Gentiles come to Jesus, are converted, coming to Jerusalem, excuse me, are converted, they receive a sign, they go back out and they reach more Gentiles. Incredible experience. This is what God's plan was. God's plan was not that Israel would stay in a 75-foot wide, 150-foot long section, mile-long section, sorry, of land for the rest of their life. That wasn't his plan. His plan was that Israel would cover the entire earth. And more importantly, it says this, 
and I will also take of them. Who's that? The Gentile missionaries. For priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. I don't need Levitical blood to have a priest. I need a gospel missionary for a priest. That's good news. Because a lot of us here don't have Levitical blood. In fact, anyone has it, please tell me afterwards. God bless you. You've got a higher place in heaven someday. No. God has a place for each one who will share for him. He calls them to be his priests and his Levites, to be his ministers. You know, prophets and kings describing this says this. The children of Israel were to occupy all the territory which God appointed them. And we've looked at that from Dan to Beersheba, right? From uh, the, past the Jordan River over to the Mediterranean Sea. Then it goes on. Those nations that rejected the worship and service of the true God were to be dispossessed, but it was God's purpose that by the revelation of his character through Israel, men should be drawn to him. To the whole world, the gospel invitation was to be given. Through the teaching of the sacrificial service, Christ would be uplifted before the nations, and all who would look unto him should live. So would Christ be preached in the Old Testament? It's a trick question. Is Christ to be preached in the Old Testament? Yes. How? Through the sacrificial service. So here's a gospel. Can I, can I call it the gospel? Here's the gospel in the Old Testament supposed to be going to the whole entire world. This has always been God's plan. All who, like Rahab the Canaanite and Ruth the Moabitess, who both, by the way, were uh, in the ancestry of Jesus Christ, turn from idolatry to the worship of the true God where to unite themselves with his chosen people. And I love this last sentence. As the numbers of Israel increased, they were to enlarge their borders until their kingdom should embrace the world. Someday, God's plan was that Israel would get bigger and bigger and bigger and so it picked up Europe in Asia and Africa. And then somehow it jumped the ocean. I don't know how God was planning on it, but I'm sure he had a good plan. In North and South America, the whole planet would be God's people. That was his plan. That was the original plan. Did it happen that way? No, it didn't. But that's what God wanted. God wanted the whole world to hear about him. It's always wanted that. It's never been different. This is what could have happened, but it's not what did. And so God chose to redefine the chosen ones. Let's look at that briefly. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. I like to look at verse 23 just tells us who God was speaking to, Jesus was speaking to. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus takes the parable of the vineyard that was given in Isaiah 5, and he just, uh, he works with it changes it, adjusts it to meet uh, the group that he's speaking to. Matthew 21 and verse 23. It says, And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching. So who's, he, who's the group of people that he's interacting with here? He's at the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people are coming. The leadership of the, of the Jewish nation. He tells them the story of the two sons. Then he tells them the story of the, of the vineyard and the husbandmen. And then notice what he says in verse 43. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Why? Because the problem is fruit. I didn't get the fruit here in Isaiah chapter 5. I am looking for fruit and not fruit that's worn. I'm looking for fruit that's born. My friends, never think that God desires you to earn your own salvation. He's looking it for it to be born in your life. If you try to earn it yourself or put it on and wear it like some kind of garment and not let him put the garment on you, it's not what he's looking for. It's not it. It's bad fruit. So here it is. He says, it's going to be taken from you and given to a nation that brings forth the fruit thereof. Who is the nation that brings forth the fruit thereof? Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Galatians 3 is uh, full of this, but Galatians 3, 29, Paul is speaking. Galatians 
And he says in verse 29, If ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm no longer looking at literal Israel as super special. What I'm looking for is those who are spiritual heirs of Abraham. They're the ones who are going to carry the gospel to the world. In fact, it doesn't say they're going to carry the gospel to the world, does it? It says they will be heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. If you are the son and daughter of Abraham and you're heir to him, that means you receive what he receives. What did Abraham's inheritance? Blessed to be a blessing. And that is your inheritance. God has called you to be a blessing. This is why Fallbrook Seventh-day Adventist Church exists. This is why you exist. No, not to just go out and run an evangelistic seminar. You exist to be a blessing so that anyone who rubs shoulders with you comes away a better person. Their lives are happier. Their load is lighter. And they get to know Jesus Christ. This is why you exist. This is your purpose. Blessed to be a blessing. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter is a beautiful verse. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 because it's actually a repetition of what was said in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. God's original plan before the Levites. Okay, I always have difficulty seeing God's original plan because I don't think there was any of the plans we're looking at in the Bible probably weren't original. You realize that. God's been working on second and third and fourth and 200th and whatever plans because we always messed up the first one. But that being said, God's plan in Genesis, Exodus 19, verse 6, of a whole nation being priests, and then it was changed to just Levites, it's coming back to a whole group of people being priests again. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Who is he speaking to? Jews. 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered abroad throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, Gentiles and Jews. God's people today, the royal priesthood, are the believers in Jesus Christ. So are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as the Lord and Savior of your life? Then you are, by definition, a royal priesthood. You know what that means? You are a minister. Isn't that why you have the conference hire Pastor Samuel and Pastor Jeff? So you don't have to? Think about it. Right? You know I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, right? But I was, I was actually uh, I was raised that way. Uh, not because not my parents taught me that. It was just what we always thought. The pastors do the work, and we pay them to do that. I've actually heard that some church boards have ever said that in the past. I know that Fallbrook has not, so I can say that. But praise God that God hasn't given the joy of ministry only to pastors. In fact, the only reason, I'm gonna, I hope I don't shock you too much, but the only reason that pastors minister is because they are part of the priesthood. That's the only reason they're ministering, because everyone's supposed to minister. They're not ministering because they're being told specially that you're supposed to minister. They have other jobs to do. Right? Sorry. I'm picking on Pastor Jeff. God has called us all to this gift, this incredible calling to be a priesthood, priesthood of all believers. So, how would you like if someone come and say, hi, priest, how are you doing? I'm looking at you specifically. I've been picking on you. Or, hi, priest, how are you doing, sir? Good? Good. God bless you in your ministry. Amen? Every single one of you in here has a ministry. 
Now, sometimes we get a little confused, and I'm getting off track, and I'm going to come back in about two minutes, okay? But sometimes we get confused because we think that ministry is getting up and preaching or playing songs or giving Bible studies, and we limit it to those three or four categories and say, bam, that's it. And I can't do that, so I don't have a ministry. No, 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 no. Jesus' ministry was so much more than that. And you are laboring with him. Some of the best ministers I've heard, and I'm going to share some stories, a lot of stories about this tonight, actually. I have a, we have a presentation called Cycle of Evangelism Tonight, and it's going to be a series of stories just about people who are ministers, if that's okay. Just how God has used in so many ways. But some of the best ministry I've seen has taken place in a kitchen. I was waiting for a few amens on that one. Some of the other incredible ministry I've seen. I'm a parent now with a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I tell you what, I, I admire Sabbath school teachers more than I've ever done in my entire life. Those of you who are Sabbath school teachers, you are cream of the crop, as they would say in the old-fashioned language, right? You are gold. Because our children, my children listen to the Sabbath school teachers more than they listen to me. Any parents out there want to second that? I don't know. It's more truthful when it comes from somebody outside of their parents. There's power. What a ministry God has called you to. We are a priesthood of believers. Manuscript 31a, March 7, 1898. The Jewish people might have repented if they would, but they were clothed with the garments of their own self-righteousness. They claimed to be the descendants of Abraham and looked upon every promise made to Israel as theirs. But the Israel of God are those who are converted not those who are the lineal descendants of Abraham. This includes every single genetic background, every ethnicity, all two genders. You hear that? That is God's people. Those who are converted are God's people. That's good news. And that conversion is not something you did for yourself. So that's even better news. Or none of us would be priests. Okay, let's continue. Prophecy describes, in the end of the Bible, chosen ones. We started out by looking at the chosen ones. We looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the children of Israel. Then we looked at what could have been, and, and then we spent a little bit of time looking at how God redefined, it, his chose, re, redefined his chosen people. We're going to look at this, this section here, prophecy's chosen ones. Who are prophecy's chosen ones? The Bible, Revelation, prophecy talks about chosen people. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 11 speaks, uh, chapter 10, speaks of John being given a book by an angel, and he eats the book, and the book tastes sweet, like honey, but in his belly, it's what? It's bitter. And, and, and those of you who have studied your history, you know this is an experience of the Adventist movement, the Advent movement, let me put it that way, in the 1830s and 40s. And, and then this call is said, go and prophesy again. Go and prophesy again. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 says who? To every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So God's chosen ones are going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. They are prophesying again. That's God's chosen ones. Another definition of God's chosen ones that you see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. You can tell me this by memory, right? And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So God's remnant, uh, not remnant, God's chosen people in the end of time, not simply are they prophesying to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, but they are commandment keepers, and they have a gift, all the spiritual gifts existing to the very end of time. That's good news. Here's another one. Revelation chapter 14, verse 7 through 9. And they give a very peculiar message, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth, and the seas and the fountains of waters. God's chosen ones call people back to worship of the true God. Worship of the creator God. So this is a picture of God's people. Now, I'm assuming that I'm speaking to a group of people who say, I connect with this, Chuck. This makes sense. I'm part of a movement that believes that we should take the gospel to the entire world. 
I'm part of a movement that believes we should keep the commandments. I'm a part of a movement that believes in spiritual gifts to the end of time. I'm part of a movement that believes these things. My friends, being part of the movement is good. Do you believe it yourself? Because this means you're part of the chosen ones. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. A warning message given to the entire world. And I'd like to focus on it just briefly, just uh, so we can see its connection to what we've studied in the Old Testament. Revelation 18 and verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Who's being spoken to here? Babylon. Would you say that Babylon is the enemy of God's people in the end of time? Yes. Just like Assyria and Egypt were the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. Just like God had people in Assyria and Egypt, and you want to call them his people, so God has the same thing in Babylon today. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and you receive not of her plagues. It doesn't say, come out of her, my people, so that I can increase the amount of people in my church auditorium on Sabbath. It doesn't say, come out of her, my people, so that I could have mm, some more tithe and offering turned into the conference. It doesn't say, come out of her, my people, so that I could have some good marks on my evangelism record. It says, come out of her, my people, so that you don't hurt. I'm cared about you. I want you to have the very best that exists. Come out so you can have it. Totally different way of thinking. We're not giving the gospel to benefit ourselves. We're giving the gospel to benefit them. That's why we give the gospel. Never has the Lord been without true representatives on this earth who have made his interests their own. You know, when I read this, I'm, I'm humbled every time. Because you know who, uh, I, I can't speak for you, but I make my interests my own. It's so easy. I have my interest. I have certain things that I desire for my family. I have a certain path that I've charted out in my life. I'm very German. Here's how things are supposed to happen. But God said, my interests are not, should be his interests. You see that. I should see God's interest and make them mine. These witnesses for God are numbered among the spiritual Israel, and to them will be fulfilled all the covenant promises made by Jehovah to his ancient people. The spiritual Israel have been restored, the privileges accorded the people of God at the time of their deliverance from Babylon. In every part of the earth, men and women are responding to the heaven-sent message which John the Revelator prophesied would be proclaimed prior to the second coming of Christ. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Who's proclaiming that message? God's people today. God's people today are proclaiming this message. So we've looked at it. One final review. We saw God's chosen people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, children of Israel, we saw what God's purpose was for them. We saw the failure. Then we saw how God redefined, chose to redefine the chosen ones. And then we saw a brief idea of what prophecy looks at the chosen ones. To now, as, as we close, I'd like to look back at Abraham. Abraham, why did God choose him? Because God chose to. But as we look at the characteristics of Abraham, we see, I believe, characteristics of God's chosen people today. So if you would take some time with me as we, as we look at this final section this morning to look at characteristics of Abraham that help us see more about the chosen. First one I'd like to look at is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. We will not read the whole passage. You will think that Genesis 12 is, uh, well, this is our main focus, if we can learn Genesis 12. Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. I'm going to skip 2 and 3. Let's read verse 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. So I want to emphasize, Abraham followed God's leading. God said, leave Ur, leave everything you know, and go. And Abram went. And Hebrews says he went, not knowing whither he went. Uh, that's a little bit of King James for you. Wow! God bless Mrs. Abraham. 
I'm serious. My wife and I were on the road for about three and a half years, and I was doing evangelism, so I was in a different place every six weeks. You can say, God bless my wife, amen? Setting up a new kitchen every six weeks. Incredible. So Abraham was leaving this dirty, filthy, medieval city, not medieval, uh, um, um, ancient city of Ur, and going out to live in beautiful tents. You know, those of you who like history may have studied Ur, and Ur was actually quite a, a modern city for its time. They had running water, indoor plumbing. Now, obviously, it was a little bit different than our kind of running water, but they had indoor plumbing, um, uh, which is kind of nice to have. It had a school system. It was clean. And Mrs. Abraham and Mr. Abraham left and lived in tents. That's a huge sacrifice. And make it even more interesting, God said, go. And Abraham said, okay, I'm just going to follow the fertile crescent, God, and you tell me when to stop. That's what happened. Amazing. They follow God's leading. You know, maybe God's calling some of you right now to go out, and you don't know where he's calling you, but you sense he's calling you. Go, my friends. There's nothing greater than being in the will of God, even if you don't know where you're at. The next part we see about Abraham is Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. Abraham was outside of his home, and he saw three men walking down the road towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said, hey, stop, please, come here. I want to feed you. And he said, no, 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 we need to go. He said, no, I insist, stop. You know what it says if you read the account in Genesis 18? That he ran to the herd to get them something to eat. Abraham was a famous chieftain. He was respected. And here he is running. Running is not something you did when you're respectable. But he ran so he could be hospitable to these three people he did not know. And as it says, he entertained angels. Incredible. As two of them continued on their way to meet with Lot, one of them stayed behind, who was the Son of God. And as he was speaking to Abraham, just amazing this relationship between God and Abraham. As they were speaking together, in verse 17 and 19, it goes something like this. God said, shall I hide from Abraham the thing I'm about to do, seeing that he commands his household after him? Now, in today's society, the phrase, command your household after you, uh, almost tastes bitter coming out of our mouth. Sometimes we think command comes with a whip. Some of you might have been commanded like that, and I am sorry. I, I am. But that's not what's being talked about here. This is talking about a godly father and a godly mother who would raise their children to know their God. And my friends, we need that today more than we've ever needed it before. We need a generation who's raised up to love Jesus Christ with all their heart. That is the characteristic. And those of you who are parents in here, put myself in this boat. You know, I had all the advice in the world for parents until I became one. Uh, my degree is in elementary education. I had studied child development, even taught it. And so I knew what you're supposed to do. And then I got my daughter, who acts like me. And I had no idea what I was supposed to do. Then you start going back and you read Adventist Home with a totally different view in your mind. Oh, this is what it means. Oh, okay. Uh, God have mercy on me. And those of you who are parents, Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. Abraham, he's woken up in the middle of the night by God. Abraham, take your son Isaac, your only son, and take him to a mountain which I will show you. You notice how God does that a lot. I'm going to show you when you start moving. Take him to a mountain which I will show you, and there sacrifice him to me. I don't know how Abraham was sure that was the voice of God, but he knew God well enough to do that. That was the voice of God, so he went. God does not accept human sacrifices, so of course it never happened. But it did show something to the entire universe that there was a person who was willing to give everything for God, withhold nothing from God. If there's anything we need today, it's that. If you're giving 90% of your life to Jesus right now, I propose that you're miserable. 
If you're giving 10%, you might be slightly miserable and amazingly happy. But if you're giving 90% of your life right now to God, I propose that you're a miserable person. But if you give 100%, you'll be happy. The line between miserable and happy is 1%. But when you give it all, my friends, it'll be an experience like you've never had before. God wants us to give everything. Why? So that he can benefit from us? Oh, come on. He's the sovereign God of the universe. What's he going to get from you? Don't take it personal. But what can we get from him? Everything. When we unite fully with him, he'll do miracles in our lives. He doesn't ask for 100% for himself. He asks for 100% because it benefits us. An awesome God we serve, my friends. And this is what we see in Abraham. This next part I get even more excited about. Romans chapter 4. Please turn there with me. Romans chapter 4. I praise God for inspiration. How about you? The Word of God just, uh, it gives us hope. Romans chapter 4. This is a, a trait of Abraham. It says this in, in verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded, that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, I go back to the story of Abraham in Genesis, and I, I just didn't get that. Romans 4, 20 through 22 does not mesh with Genesis and my mind. I mean, did Paul forget about Ishmael? When he was writing Paul, when he was writing the book of Romans, under inspiration, I might add, did God forget about Ishmael? Did he forget about Hagar? Did he forget about this little lying thing that David, uh, Abraham was doing every now and then? And my answer is yes. He chose to. Are you listening to me? Sorry, it just sounded like a parent. I apologize. Think of it this way. Once Abraham gave his heart and life to God, surrendered it, and asked for forgiveness of it, it was no longer remembered by the pen of inspiration. God looks back at Abraham and says, he staggered not. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ covered him. I've made some stupid mistakes in my life, and I'm sure I'm not alone. But by God's grace, someday, I hope to see my name written in the inspired record in heaven, whatever's being written right now, and say, Chuck staggered not. Wouldn't that be awesome? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 through 10, and 13 through 16. Hebrews. A beautiful chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. If you want a chapter to memorize, I, I challenge you to memorize Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's fun. It's very long. But it's fun. Um, there's just a lot of neat things in it. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10 says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He dwelled in the land of promises in a strange country. But then it says in verse 13. Let's look at verse 14. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of the country for whence they had come out, they might have had, had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. There is a group of people on this planet who God is not ashamed to say, I'm their God. Now, we sometimes think about how we shouldn't be ashamed about God, right? To stand up in the workplace or stand up in the school and say, I am a Christian. And we look at those people and say, man, that's admirable. But you know what I think is even more admirable? For God to stand before the entire universe and say, see that person down there? That's mine, and I'm their God. Wow. 
You know that song? This world is not my home. I'm just the passing through. That's Abraham's thinking. And that can be our thinking. You know, you're not a Californian. Right? Or Arizonian. Or Pennsylvanian. You are a Christian. What would you call a person who's from heaven? A heavenonian? All right? We are, this world is not our home. We are simply ambassadors. That's what Paul calls us, right? Ambassadors are people who live in a country that's not theirs, representing the country they're from. And we're ambassadors. What an awesome thing that God has called us to. All right. So we had a chance, uh, I believe, that we can look at this description of Abraham and gives us hope. This is the kind of people that God wants us to be. And it's only through the incredible faith and mercy of God. Let me rephrase it. It's only through the incredible grace and mercy of God that Abraham was able to have these things said of him. There's one final verse I'd like to close with, and it's found in the book of James. James chapter 2 and verse 23. James is speaking of Abraham as, uh, and his faith, as many of the Bible writers have done. And he makes this statement. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, God, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Friend of God. I really like this idea of the fact that right now there is a history being written in heaven about our time here. Now, I'm sure it's not with a pen and paper. I mean, I would think not. I'm sure we're pretty digitally advanced here, and I'm sure heaven's more digitally advanced than we are. But there's a history that's being recorded of our time here. There's a history that's being recorded of the Fallbrook Church. You know that. You're in a history book right now in heaven. And as God's writing down these details, someday you're going to have a chance to read the history from heaven's point of view. Can you imagine seeing your name and the phrase friend of God next to it? I would love that. You know, a friend is, is, is so much deeper than a belief system. Isn't that right? A friend is something that's heart to heart. A friend is someone that you pour your heart out to. A friend is someone you joy and laugh with. A friend is just something so much more. God's looking for friends today. Not friends that will click and say, I accept you as a friend on Facebook. That's not the kind of friends Jesus is looking for. Jesus is looking for friends who love him intimately, want to spend time with him. And he's going to use those friends to help himself find other friends because that's what his mission is for his people, to help me find friends. God's called you, my friends. You have a purpose. There's a reason why you and I exist. It's to witness, yes, to be a light, yes, to bear fruit, yes, but ultimately to help find more friends for Jesus. I want to do that. How about you? Could we pray? And as we pray, I want to just ask if in your heart you feel God speaking to you that it's time for you to step out in a very real way and, and take seriously this call to, to find friends for God that in your heart you will make that decision. I will give a little bit of silence while I'm praying so that you have time to do that, okay? Would you bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, this afternoon as we are here, I ask that you would draw close to us. We're amazed at the mercy you showed Abraham, and we long, we know you've given us that same mercy. Father, help us to have the joy of 100% surrender to you, to find out what it's like to go all the way. And we have been convinced from your word that you have a calling for us today, a calling for us this year, a calling for us for the rest of our lives. Father, there's some of us here who want to tell you in our own hearts 
that we want to serve you wherever you call us. And we're going to take some time to do that now. Father, you've heard in our hearing. Bless us and give us strength and may we have the joy of truly working with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.